Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining the Experts Only Podcast. My name is Thomas Byrne. I'm guest hosting this week's podcast. Today, I welcome Gretchen Bakke, the author of an amazing book, The Grid, one of Bill Gates's top five books of 2016. We discuss the fascinating origins of the grid in the United States and the challenges it now faces. The book is a must read for all energy professionals. It is a great discussion. We know you'll enjoy. Gretchen Bach, author of The Grid, welcome to Clean Capital's Experts Only podcast. Thank you so much. You are the first anthropologist on the podcast, so welcome. <laughs> that's a, that's a, it's an it's an August honor. <laughs> <laughs> so I came I came about your book the way I assume many other folks did, which is when Bill Gates uh, listed it as one of the top five books of 2016. What was your thoughts when you heard that uh, he he put that list out? You know, it's it's interesting because I have a I have great gratitude toward him for that. He's well read, um, but my gratitude is actually that all of the other people on the list that year were people who were already famous, <laughs> and I was the one person who was who nobody had ever heard of who'd taken this big chance to write this book uh, as an anthropologist about energy and electrical engineering and just trying to explain how the whole grid system and electricity system and storage and how all of it actually worked to an audience of people who had the kind of knowledge that I had when I actually started doing research, um, which is just like everybody and not very much. Um, And so I, I thought that it was very... I mean, I think he did it because he liked the book. He likes those kinds of books, as he said. But he also, he tends to kind of, every once in a while, there'll be a kind of like how things, how this thing works or how this thing came about on his list. But at the same time, it felt like sort of not a risk for him. But had I been in his shoes, it would seem sort of risky to say like, look, here's this, you know, book by someone you've never heard of. Go read it. (laughs) The problem was the book immediately sold out because the press was also. As I know. Quite surprised. And so it took, I think, three weeks for them to actually get to print it again um, and get it back out onto the shelves. I, I was in the backlog. I, I remember ordering the book and the gene, which was the uh, one of the other books on that list. And uh, Yeah, exactly. And I couldn't get either one of them <laughs> for a month. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good. I'm glad that I wasn't the, it wasn't only my book. That happened too. Good. Um, it has a tremendous effect. Um Indeed, I mean it's short. Short of Oprah, I think it's the it's mm-hmm. it's the big recommendation, right? Um, and I've been trying to get the book read. Um, I mean, Oprah would be also great because I've been trying to get the book read by women. Uh, time and again, that comes back to the fact that actually it's mostly being um, read by men. But when I wrote it, I was really like, women are half the population, and um, and I wrote it to be this kind of like tale of adventure that would be. <laughs> I think the the excitement there is. I mean, one of the things that this book rode upon was this growing excitement as I was doing the research about actually working in electrical systems engineering. As I, you know, as the grid began to change, um, as solar became more and more prevalent, as generation became something that was private so people could invest in it like suddenly there's just this whole generation of people who would have gone into computers or IT or some other sort of engineering that was kind of cooler 
um, suddenly were being drawn into into electrical engineering and power systems engineering, and that was really exciting to watch. I had all these undergraduates coming to me and being like, "I want to, I want to, I want to make solar panels." You, you know? make you make it exciting in your book. That's for sure. <laughs> well, it is exciting. It is actually exciting. But Great. I do my best to reflect that outward and make that you know obvious to people. So let's let's do a little history on, on you and how you ended up getting into the grid. Uh, where'd you grow up? So I grew up in rural Oregon. Um, There's uh, some huge wind farms in Oregon these days. Exactly, and the the what what I was drawn into. I mean, there's a lot of Oregon actually in the book, um, sometimes explicitly and sometimes between the lines. But there were two things that happened in Oregon that actually drew me into the project. The first was this massive explosion of um, wind farm wind farm development in the Columbia River Forge. Yeah, um, and that makes up the first chapter, the discussion about that um, how wind is a variable source of power generation, it affects the grid, which was designed to run on much more stable, controlled sources of power, um, like a coal-burning power plant or even a hydroelectric dam. So that sort of conflict that was happening very early, already in the 2000s in the Columbia River Gorge, makes up the first chapter of the book. And then later on in the book, I talk about this moment at which um, there was this very big storm that came and sort of decimated the Pacific Northwest coast, where there's essentially no people live. But it was all the way from Northern California up to Canada. Um, and nobody's ever heard of this storm, but it was in, in my hometown, is in the, was sort of in the swath um, that was wiped out by the storm. And that, that was in 2007. And I really started to see people losing faith in the electricity system. And that to me seemed also, it was one of the things that sort of piqued my interest of like, okay, as an anthropologist, what I pay attention to is, is people and what people do and how people organize their lives and talk about their lives and take action in relationship to their lives. And this to me seems something really, really new for just regular non-radical people at all to say like, I just don't believe in this infrastructure anymore. That's so um, interesting. And so I'm going to put my money out there and try to figure out something else. And what they figured out, uh, what they did was not what you assume from the outside. It wasn't like they were like, you know, we're going to put solar panels up and we're going to make all our own electricity and we're going to be off the grid and, you know, we're going away from this whole system. It was much more, um, and I've seen this over and over since, um, we're going to use this system when it works. But when it's not working, we're going to have some sort of backup. Uh, and that has, in the U.S., been a big driver uh, of the change, especially coming out of rural communities. That's amazing. So let's set it up. Let's take it way back to the dawn of the grid. What did the grid look like in the in the early days, before 1900? So the grid, grids originally, so the very, very, very first one that you could really call a grid was in San Francisco. And it was uh, what, what are called arc lights, okay. um, which are very, very intensely bright Light. We use them now for um, the IMAX theater uh, projectors. Right. That's the only place we still use them. But there's crazy bright lights. And you can't run very many of them off the generator, but you can run about seven. So, And they all have to be on or they all have to be off. And so the San Francisco Chronicle uh, had one of these put into their, to their newsroom. And then there were also some street lighting that went in in New York City. Um, and so these, these were not at all related to the grid that we have now, except that there was a power source, there were some wires, and there was some light. And then uh, what Edison did, and we think of Edison as the father um, of the grid, which also isn't quite true, um, because the grids, these arc light grids predated him, but also because there were changes that happened to the grid after him. But Edison put in um, a grid in lower Manhattan that was a mile square, 
And the thing that was really revolutionary about it at the time, um, and the thing we still have, is that he had all of these very dim lights. Um, and he had it, he made it so that you could turn one light off without turning off the whole system. Uh, and both of these things were, were really revolutionary. But the idea, again, went into the New York Times office. There were newspaper men, they needed to have lights. Clerks, they needed to have lights. It was right around Wall Street. Edison actually electrified his lawyer's office. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, he wanted the press to be excited. He wanted his lawyer to work harder. You know, J.P. Morgan also got electric light at that point. So it was <laughs> It's, it's also at this beginning of, of the America that we know now was in the process of trying to figure out how to work more. Because at that time with gaslighting, basically, it was really hard on your eyes. It made your eyes really itchy and you couldn't see that well. And there was just this sort of need for a better quality light so that there could be longer working hours, especially in the wintertime. So the initial grid is started distributed very much and, and local. Right, very and so this was a muni- this was sort of a sort of municipal grid, but it was the grid that Edison made only could go about a hundred about a mile before you actually had to build a whole new system. Yeah. So he had this great plan that he would have a power plant at every square mile of Manhattan. Um, which Manhattan did not think was a very good plan. They had all these coal these this coal was brought in by horses, you know, to fuel these generators. Um and then so there were these very small municipal grids that did go in. There were small grids that people put into factories. Um, there were grids that were running streetcars. There were grids that some rich people had in their homes. But essentially it was a de- a device that powered something like the size of a of a college campus uh today. It wasn't it couldn't expand beyond that because of the, the actual physical nature of the the current that was being made. It was running what's called direct current, and direct current you have to you can't change it. So a streetcar company had to run a, a much higher voltage on their direct current system than a, uh, somebody mm-hmm. was running light bulbs. So you'd need separate systems for all of these things. And we can't even imagine that today, where you like would have a refrigerator and you would have to have a different grid. Right. If you wanted to run your fridge versus running your light bulb. And that's the change that came uh, in the late or the late 1880s, early 1990s is where alternating current um, that was Nikola Tesla, the famous um, and George Westinghouse businessman actually managed to put that make that grid um, a viable, marketable thing. So it's distributed at that point, and then along Edison's protege or, or, or second fiddle, whatever you want to call it, this gentleman, <laughs> Secretary, yeah. Yeah, this gentleman named Samuel Insull. Tell, tell everyone about yeah. Samuel Insull and his importance. Yeah, so Samuel Insull, I think, is largely forgotten. Now we, we talk so much about Tesla because he was this kind of quirky, um, idiosyncratic inventor. And we talk a lot about Edison because he just made so much stuff that we are familiar with today. Um, but Samuel Insull was just, just he was a, a fantastic uh, businessman. Um, so he was English by birth, and he was Thomas Edison's secretary. And he didn't want to be second. Um, yeah. And so when he got the chance, he took over Chicago Edison, I think that's what it was called then. It changed names like 15 different times over its <laughs> history, but I think back then that's what it was called. And again, like we can't appreciate at the current moment where people are used to having just one big electricity provider. You know, you're in PG&A territory, you pay your bills to PG&E, and that's just what it is. Yep. right? But at that particular time, there were 18 grids, 18 power companies in the loop in Chicago. Hmm. So taking over Chicago Edison was not like suddenly becoming the king of an empire. It was like becoming the king of a, I don't know, a couple square blocks, yeah. <laughs> essentially. Um, 
But what he figured out was that all of the grids that were in use were being, they were underutilized essentially because they were supplying um, power at their full capacity only for little pieces of the day. And the, um, I talk about this a lot in the book, is that the kind of way of doing business in right around 1900 was to monopolize. So that was just, that was just the, when people thought about how you ran a business, they thought, how do you make a monopoly out of this business? And so he didn't have a thing. Samuel Insel, he didn't have a thing. He had this force, um, which is quite different than, you know, U.S. Steel. You can't stockpile electricity. And so he had this very, he had this problem that he wanted to make a monopoly like everyone else was, but out of this thing that he couldn't store or control really the production of, and he had a huge amount of competition. So what do you think? I mean, he put people out of business the regular way. <laughs> by buying them or buying their suppliers or like bad, bad, you know, bad mouthing their name or underselling them or all of these sort of normal ways. But he also very slowly figured out how to run a monopoly in the electricity business. And the way to do that wasn't to control a market in space. It, so to say to control Chicago and all of that electricity market, it was to think about how you could get people to use electricity 24 hours a day yeah. so that you didn't have to turn your power plant down. And this is just phenomenal because he was thinking in time. He was a businessman who was thinking about how to provide a product temporally as opposed to over a space. And nobody else has done that. And even today as we are begin to, to, to reform our grid, um, and I'm sure we'll come to that, um, there's a real breakdown where people still want to run an electricity business like any other business. And yet they have this product which is not like any other product. Um, and, and Insel was the one person who kind of figured out how to do that. And so he made sure that he got the business of the streetcar companies who were in the morning and the evening, streetlight companies who were at night, domestic electricity use, which was also in the evening but tend to turn off around midnight, and then factories who could be encouraged to run at night for essentially free electricity, and also who would run during the day, and then office buildings to have light in the evenings. So before people were getting home. And so he was just kept looking at who would use power and how they would use it. And then he just, he just kept convincing them, mostly by lowering the price, just inordinately to buy into his system instead of pr producing electricity for themselves. So this is when the modern utilities really sort of take shape. It's yeah. a centralized place. Yeah, because as soon controls. as he figured that out, then there were just, there were sort of utility monopolists who just followed that pattern and um, all over the country. And then there's this dance between um, among the utilities to actually get regulated to enhance their monopoly. Right, exactly. So they, again, like there's, there's a sort of this idea that regulation is a <laughs> thing that, um, sort of comes from the government and, uh, and, and controls a particular industry to keep that industry from getting out of, uh, I mean, to get out of control. Think about mining, for example. It's like, how do you make sure that mines aren't collapsing on people? Well, there's some sort of regulation that goes in and monitors how well they're being built and blah, 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 right? But with the electricity industry, it was actually Insul went to the government and said, we would like you to regulate us. Mm. At that particular moment in time, there was the sort of Democratic Party apparatus and so people would kind of hook the wagon of their interests to a particular politician. Um, and that politician was a sort of big boss and ran the racket of local politics, um, especially in places like Chicago and Boston, right? But what Insel said is, this is a very risky thing 
because the infrastructure that we're building is going to last so long. When you build a power plant, um, you're thinking at that time they were thinking 15, 20 years. Now we're thinking 50 years, um, even longer. And so that politician will be gone. And so mm-hmm. it's very risky to sort of hook your fortunes to a particular person. So mm-hmm. he said to the government, to the federal government, we would really like to have a bureaucracy, which is devoted to regulating us. And what we promise is that we will not overcharge the customers. So we'll be sort of hand in glove with this regulatory apparatus. There'll be no competition because we can't have competition. Yeah. Because the nature of this product Convenient. is that you, yeah. need it, you need 24-7 usage, right? So you won't, we'll have competition. We'll be the so-called natural monopoly. And our exchange will be that we won't price gouge. Um, and so this regulatory sort of infrastructure grew up inside the government that was not then linked to a particular politician, um, but was part of the, the government bureaucracy. Um, and that's how all the way to the present, in many places, there is uh, there are many kinds of utilities in the U.S. I think there are 3,600 of them. Um, there are these really, most of us pay a bill to one of these really, really big ones, um, like a southern company or PG&E, um, yeah, I, I should be a Pepco. There's you know, yeah. there's a lot of them. But there's also rural cooperatives, there's municipal utilities, there's all different um kinds of utilities in the US, but for seventy years, um, they could not compete with one another. So they had a territory and they got to control all of the customers yeah. inside of that territory. And so so this starts the relationship between the highly regulated between the power producers and the high and the bureaucracy, and that continues um, that becomes the status quo for decades, and we're, I'm, I'm glossing over a lot, but then we hit a point in the 1970s where things, um, I really took from your book, like the, the, a lot of change happened in the 70s that were would have repercussions for the, the decades that followed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that a lot of those changes were very, very small. Um, and so it's easy to forget that they started in the 1970s because you start to feel them 15 years later. Or more. I mean, so much of what's happening now um, was the result of these sort of hairline cracks that were legislated into the system in the 1970s. Um, and give us so, some examples, yeah. Yeah. The, um, so there were, I mean, there were just many, many things that uh, came to a head in this, in this particular moment. One is that you have to remember that this. Samuel Info, he figured out the system for making power on electricity, and that lasted for 50 years without any, it never faltered. Yeah. Um, and so you had a generation of people who, had, who were then working in the utility sector who'd never seen anything else. It was, like, it was like there was a physical truth to how you ran the electricity business. Um, and that meant that you would have higher plant efficiency, higher power plant efficiency, Every generation of power plant would have a higher efficiency, and the price that you would charge for electricity would be able to go down because of that. Um, so prices were kept low and would fall, actually, and also that America would always use more electricity. Um, so demand would then go up, and then you could build a bigger power plant that was more efficient, keep the price down, demand would go up. And this had been going on for 50 years, and what happened in the 1970s is all of those things changed. And they changed at the same time that the energy crisis happened, um, which was an oil crisis. We weren't making very much electricity out of oil. Um, I believe that it was uh, Johnson had said that we should be making more electricity out of oil. So there had been some power plant conversions just before um, the oil crisis uh, happened in the early 1970s, um, the first of them. 
But for the most part, we made electricity in the U.S. out of coal. Um, but when the oil prices went up, the coal prices went up. Mm. Um, because everybody who could use coal instead of oil made the transition um, yeah. and drove drove that market up. Um, so, but also plants reached a maximum of efficiency. Power plants couldn't easily be made more efficient than they were at that time, um, and they still to this day run at about that same level of efficiency that was reached in the late 1960s. Um, and the environmental movement happened um, in the 1970s, which meant that people began to actually use less electricity. So all of these things sort of came together, completely rocked the utility sector. And yet nobody, there was a lot of complaint, especially around the building of nuclear power plants, but nobody could actually intervene. It was such a tight, hermetically sealed system between the utilities and the government that nobody could actually get in there and say like, hey, we'd like to have something change. Um, And so what happened, um, to cut the whole long story short, I know (laughs) everybody is fascinated by all of the things that happened under Carter in the 1970s, um, is that one very small clause of a huge energy bill that did many, many things that changed the way that energy is governed in the United States including creating the Department of Energy. One tiny clause said if there is a small electricity producer who can um, make electricity for more cheaply, it's called the avoided cost, we could say more cheaply than the utilities, then the utilities have to buy that electricity and they have to move it to market. Um, And this was like, it's so, it seems like nothing, right? Complete explosion of like, happiness and joy so by is, all this, different kinds of people this is called this is <laughs> like, called purpa and what's yeah it was called purpa exactly what what is amazing is purpa anyone who's been in the power industry um knows purpa the the term purpa and and has seen it for years yet what i never quite realized is how minuscule it was in the grand scheme of of the bill at that point yeah and the bill passed by one vote <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing so, so and there were there were many different kinds, and we tend to think of of the renewables revolution coming out of this bill in California. Um, many many different experiments with how to make electricity from wind, all these river dams, um, just small power plants of various sorts. But one of the great effects of it was actually the fact that cogeneration became quite. It had been very normal in the early part of the 20th century, and it became very normal again. Which is to say, if you have a a paper mill um, or any kind of big hot factory, you can make electricity with the excess heat of that factory and sell that um, back out of the grid, out to the grid, which is essentially a double use of yeah. um, a double use of your of whatever your fuel source is, and it's an added income for all of these um, industrial concerns. And so that's that was really the renewables revolution was that we have today was a part of or was a result of this bill, but also just this idea of that it makes sense to be a little bit more efficient um, about uh, the way that we use resources like, you know, coal to smelt steel. You might as well also make electricity and make a buck um, off of that. So this, so purple really gets, gives a boost to distributed generation or co-generation also mm-hmm. gives, also validates yeah, and renewables. I, I would say co-generation is also distributed because it's not a bit, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's not one solar panel on one person's house. It's not so radically distributed, but it's not one. It's just not a big electricity factory, sure. right? That's owned by a utility that's sitting there, and the utility is completely controlling 
um, everything that comes out of it. it it's these factories uh, cogeneration plants are sort of scattered around. Um, and then, of course, like wind parks begin to come scattered around all of these things. But there was this sort of it was the thing that was radical about it is that the utilities lost control. At first, a very small amount, but it was com- it was completely boggling to them. And to so, so there's it. like there. So what started in the 70s and then into the 80s, you start seeing the renewables. You're this this slow transit. I mean, in hindsight, it's a fast transition, but it, it probably felt like a slow transition at that point. And then take us to the 90s and the 2000s where deregulation starts becoming the norm and, and the grid starts becoming antiquated and, and its, its age is starting to reveal itself. Right. Yeah, exactly. So the, the I mean, that's, a, a, again, a giant story, but the, um, there are so many funny moments in the whole process. Um, but one of the things that happens is that um, the savings and loans are deregulated in the early 1990s. Yeah. And so all of this money floods into um, wind, wind turbines. Um, there are some good tax schemes associated with wind in California. And so it becomes this kind of wind bubble. And there's yeah. just like cash like flying around. And that um, that kind of mainstreamed to the financial world that you could invest in renewables, that this wasn't just a bunch of crazy hippies. It was a bunch of crazy hippies, but they also, you know, were creating a product that, um, and it sort of inserting it into a, a, a regulatory tax world that investment could follow. Um, and so that was a, that was sort of a game changer. Then what happens in the 1990s, of course, or many things, but the big one that we all talk about um, is deregulation. And deregulation was not deregulation in the electricity sector. It was just a complete shift of regulation. So the utilities were still all completely regulated. They still didn't get to make any choices, but they had to follow a a whole different set of rules than had been there previously. And the one that has had the greatest impact um, is the, in many states, the um, utilities were no, these, Big utilities were no longer allowed to own power generation. Hmm. What was the logic? That's so strange. What was the logic for that rule? Well, it became clear that the utilities were not the most efficient, that the way this idea of building giant power plants was actually not the most efficient, not the most cost-effective way to produce electricity. Um, So it it essentially was there to introduce um, competition into the market. Um, and nobody wanted to introduce competition in the lines. Like you don't want a bunch of parallel sets of lines, right? right. But and in fact, the that is when electricity production became kind of a cool thing to be getting into. Um, is when you could build a big wind farm. It's not that you just build a tiny one because the original PURPA rules, I think, were under 50 megawatts. You couldn't make more than that and sell in. But then with deregulation, you can build any kind of electricity electricity factory you want. And uh, the the utility then needs to buy that power from you because they're not making power anymore. Now, if this wasn't so pure, like a lot of utilities ended up managing, for example, nuclear power plants that they previously owned. So, and a lot, you know, and, 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 still and a lot utilities. Of I know to this day, a lot of utilities have separate entities that own these assets, and the actually highly regulated utility is a. An affiliate, but they they don't have any actual ownership over the assets. Right, exactly. And there still are states that where utilities can own the the power plants. Right. So now that the landscape is, you have cogeneration or, or and distributed generation in in the market. Renewables are in the market, and then 
third party ownership of power plants has taken root. That's like, so think about what Samuel Insel had in mind, where it was basically control everything. We're now into the 2000s and it's the opposite. It's actually becoming much more fragmented again. Exactly. And then you, and then you suddenly have um, the internet. Right. Right. And so then people begin trading electricity online. The spot markets develop, futures markets develop. Um, and all of these things that don't really jive with the way that electricity is made, because the thing about electricity is that it's instantaneous. So you can kind of guess what the price will be, but then the, or how much electricity might be needed at a particular time of a particular day. And then there's all of these bidding between all of the various power generators to make that power at the lowest possible price. But then there's the lines and who owns access to the lines and you get things like Enron where there's, it's so complicated yeah. that gaming the system becomes part of the fun of being a part of the system. Right. And you get the, the 2000, what was it, 2001 or 2002 California crisis. Blackouts, yeah, exactly. blackouts. Um, And then also, you know, there are many in the early 2000s, there were, there were a lot of blackouts that seemed to be related to over too much air conditioner use. So you have these, this is something we haven't really talked about, but because electricity is instantaneous, which is to say it's made within a minute of when it's used. The utilities in the old days had about 10% of all of their generating power and all of their line space on reserve for this one or two days a year when everyone would turn their air conditioner on. And as competition entered entered the market, they had to start running a very, very tight ship. Um, They couldn't just have all of these resources sitting on the side. Um, and so as they start, as things started to get slimmer and more streamlined in all things that we believe are good for industries and companies to do, that, that was great, except for that day, in fact, in August, when all the air conditioners would go on at the same time. Um, and that, so there were a lot of blackouts that were happening in the early 2000s that were simply the result of, I mean, the, the grid was old and it wasn't necessarily being kept up the wire part of it in the way that it should. But also there was just all of this chaos in terms of how power was made, where power was made, who was managing that. And it just become became much, much more difficult to maintain a stable system. And and from this, these various factors that are converging, you know, all in, you know, less than 15 years ago, how is the grid starting to transform you have a great story about what Excel, Excel's failed attempt at to address the modernization of the grid. They just couldn't keep up. Um, and, you know, what does it start looking like um, in, in these, you know, after all these factors converge? Yeah, so the, 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 you have this situation that's sort of this landscape um, that we've been talking about. And then into that, you drop the renewables revolution. Yeah. Right. And it just, it's just like, it's not that it's the worst possible moment. In fact, the renewables revolution was caused by or made possible by all of these very small changes over time. But suddenly you don't, not only do you have like coal burning power plants being replaced by, you know, 30 smaller, more distributed uh, natural gas combustion power plants, but you have wind, which in the early days was all going on in in one spot. So it sort of acted like a power plant. It was all in one place. But the wind would blow and it would produce more power and then the wind would still and it would produce no power. And then into that, you suddenly have solar, which is um, distributed like there can be a couple of panels on one house. And that's happening all over the Southwest. And the problem of managing the grid 
exploded, but also the technology for managing the grid began to start to keep up. And so what we have now is this, there is a lot of money after the the, the big Northeast blackout. The, there's a lot of money that's gone into the transmission network to make it more stable. Um, and there is some money going into the distribution network, which is your local low voltage system that's sort of around your house, not the stuff, not those big wires, but the little wires. Yeah. But a lot of that has to do with digitization. That's why we have these smart meters. And just trying to manage uh, all of this information that is coming out of from variable uh, electricity production and distributed electricity production, much of which is happening um, not far away, but, uh, you know, on your neighbor's house. Um, so power is being made where it's being used, and it's using all of these sort of smaller wires and flowing in two directions on the lines, not from the power plant to the house, but actually from the house, from the houses to all the other houses. Uh, and the the utilities begin, there's some financing to that, which I can talk about if you want or not, um, but the utilities fight, fight especially solar. Mm-hmm. Um, they fight hard. And part of the reason is, is because they have been required by law, again, because it's kind of exciting to have a lot of renewable generation. It makes sense if you're living in Arizona to produce power from the sun yeah. as opposed to from coal. But they fight very hard this particular set of shifts. And the reason behind it is that their revenue is being stripped from them. They're now paying retail rates um, for power as opposed to wholesale, buying at wholesale and selling at retail. They're paying, they're buying at retail and selling at retail, so they yeah. have no money. And at noon, there's too much electricity on the system. So if you have a ton of solar, there's just way, there's more electricity that can, can be used. And that, it turns out for the grid, is just as bad is not having enough electricity. And this is so, only, and this is only, I mean, getting the wor- last 10 worse. Years. Yeah, and this is only getting worse at, with every passing day, right? This tension and right. this this sort of imbalance between what the utilities provide and the services they provide and how the energy landscape is becoming more distributed today. Yeah, absolutely. And there are utilities who have been trying to get out in front of it. So the first impulse by many utilities was to say, like, to just throw everything at stopping this process. Right. Um, so there's there's a, be- a beautiful story of somebody put up solar panels on their roof in the in New York City, and then the the backup power, uh, the backup fee that they had to pay. So essentially, like if something happened and their panels didn't work, and they had to go back onto the grid and take um, uh, it's Con Ed, so electricity from Con Ed. So for the right to do that, it was thirty six thousand dollars a month, <laughs> right? And so, but these sorts of things, so that would just sort of it, it, somebody actually in Florida, this just happened to them as well. So it was sort of this first try of just being like, no, you can't do that; it's too complicated and too expensive. Oh um, and that's done. But now, I mean, Con Ed is actually one of the the most encouraging, sort of excited. They actually put together bids to say like, okay, how can all of you, you know, how can this neighborhood or this suburb figure out how to create a more secure grid by producing electricity for yourselves. Um, so that's all in the past. I, I don't want to badmouth them now because they're doing really um, pretty amazing stuff. Green Mountain Power in Vermont um, is also, they uh, at one point, they had a limit of, I think it was 6% uh, electricity made by solar. They raised it to 15%, and within eight months, they were at 15%. And then they stopped it again. And at the, every time a utility stops, says we can't integrate any more renewables, any more variable renewables, 
they get all of this bad press. Yeah. Um, so, and in some cases, it's because they really are trying to not go out of business um, and so maybe deserve bad press because they should be working hard to figure out how to have a renewably powered electricity system that works. But in many cases, they're trying to figure that out. But they just need, they have to, you know, at, when you increase by that, you know, by 10% in eight months, it's like, okay, whoa, <laughs> now what? Okay, 45%, you know, go. And Hawaii is also, Hawaii is facing this, Southern California is facing this. When you can see, I mean, the big joke is Florida, right? Which All the sunlight, right. it has no solar, has all that sunlight and has no solar power. Yeah. So because of this very tight relationship between the utility and the legislature, there's essentially no solar power in Florida. But the utility is investing in renewables everywhere else in the country. So what is um, what is the proper role so uh, for utilities today? Who, who's doing it? You've, you've discussed a few who are doing it well, like Con Ed, Green Mountain Power. I'm, I'm glad to hear Con Ed because that's my service provider. Um, uh-huh. and, <laughs> They're doing well. Yes. They were not. Yeah. <laughs> they decided that, that it was better to be a leader than a follower on this one. And they really changed their philosophy and turned, turned themselves around. And so how do utilities play a role? Um, what does the future utility look like? Um, I think it's 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 up for grabs. Um, there are some utilities which have said their job is to facilitate, so to manage the lines. Um, and in fact, when you say grid, people immediately think of the lines. They don't think of the whole. They don't think of generation, for example, as being part of a grid, or a toaster as being part of a grid. They think just of the lines, and it starts to to move in the direction of. Um, the utility being the one that manages the lines and makes sure that the, um, there's enough space on those lines um, for the electricity which is demanded in one particular place to actually make it to that place. There are utilities who have tried to figure out how to be um, service and knowledge providers. So, for example, they're, they're the ones who you would rent your solar panels from or you would take a, out a long-term lease. So, in many places, people don't buy solar panels and put them up on their house um, themselves. They actually lease them from a company. Um, this was, I'm going to forget the name of it, but it was one of Elon Musk's spinoff companies. Was Sol- the first solar one. City. Yeah, exactly. The first one that was, that began to do this, like this leasing. They would get all of the tax credits from the federal and state governments for this, but then you would simply pay a, a rate every month, like a mortgage to them. Yeah. Um, so there are utilities which are now offering that kind of service. So they're, um, in a way, owning generation, but it's sort of one solar panel at a time. You know, there are utilities who believe that uh, 100%, so they have sort of an ethic that says 100% renewable power is actually what we need. Um, so how can we act, How can we make that happen? That's what you see with Green Mountain Power. Yeah. Um, they're really trying to figure out um, how it is that they can make a an entirely renewable, um, which means very variable system function. Um, and then there are other utilities who are completely uninterested in this. There are utilities who will put in, um, you know, a, one microgrid because everybody else is doing it. Right. You know, <laughs> they can sort of say like, they need we have one too, right? They, they need the headline, exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So again, because there are so many utilities in America, um, because the cultures of the U.S. are so different in different places, because the natural resources are so different in different places, um, you just in the in the south, for example, you just don't have the kind of hilly terrain that's going to give you good hydropower. Right. And so um, there are other resources. There's a lot of sun. Um, there is there is are some natural 
um, cave structures that would allow for pressurized um, pressurized air storage. So it's not storing electricity, but it's using electricity to compress air. Um, and then when that air decompresses, it can run through a turbine um, and produce new electricity. So you can sort of use it like a battery without any chemicals. So that, you know, the South has resources that would allow for that kind of development. But, you know, you're just going to get a very different story than you are in Iowa. Um, Iowa being one of the most renewably powered states in the country, but not very many people. But they have huge wind resources and they have huge solar resources. Um, And they're trying to figure out how you run a farm on that. So different, you know, different regions of the country have... Uh, have different priorities, have different um, natural resources available to them, have different business structures, have different cultures, have different amounts of money. Um, and that plays out. It means that, in fact, um, the grid has always been sort of local, um, but that's playing out even more now um, as uh, decisions, for example, that are being made um, in the West Coast are quite different than those that are being made on the East Coast. And are you confident that, you know, as we kind of go through this transition that we are going to maybe 10 years from now, 5, 10, 20 years from now, have the balance right where we can, where the grid or whatever we're defining as the grid can be the foundation where renewables, you know, I think it really is a question of how are we ready for renewables to become the primary energy source over the next 10 years, 20 years? Yeah, so talking to electrical engineers, they are the most excited population anywhere. <laughs> like, wow. It's, what, they have been, what they have been set with is a series of extremely good, solvable problems. And they're working very, very hard to figure out how to create a stable electrical system that is running on renewables. And there are many ways to do that, uh, and they're working on all of them. So the... One of the things that I really found uh, when I was writing the book is that I would talk to people and they would want this disaster scenario. They would sort of want be like, you know, like, when is the moment going to happen where the whole, when it's a firestorm and the whole country's down, the terrorists get us and there's a, you know, like there's some sort of like neutron bomb and we don't have any electricity and blah, 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 blah. And, or that it just gets so old that the whole thing falls apart, you know, and suddenly we're, you know, like Puerto Rico is today. Right, but the whole nation, and actually, the story that's there is not that story. The story that's there is things are changing, and um, there are some people ahead of that change. So, for example, the first people, the first companies that were putting in wind farms, um, they weren't, ca- they didn't care about what the transmission system was like, and so the utilities at that point were kind of behind. But now there there are new actors who are trying to get ahead of the change. Um, and this is always, there's always this kind of like, you know, two two steps forward, one step back movement that's happening that is moving us fairly quickly along toward an extremely diverse electricity system, which is to say that if we want 100% renewables, which, and I'm happy that Hawaii and California and Vermont are trying this, um, but if we want a system that's 100% renewables, that's quite different than saying that we want a system which is radically diverse. Um, And that kind of radical diversity, which is to say it's not just coal that's going in and electricity that's coming out, but it's wind, it's hydro, it's solar, it's tidal power, it's geothermal, it's biomass, it's coal, it's natural gas. All of these things um, have become a part of the mix, and that's already true. And so 
I think often when we talk about an energy transition, we think, okay, coal will be gone and it will all be wind power. Like it will be a one-to-one transition. But in fact, um, both infrastructurally and in terms of fuels, it's going from one thing. We had, you know, one big grid that worked. Well, we actually had four, but we we had a very big grid system that ran almost entirely upon coal, not totally, but almost entirely upon coal. And now we're getting much more diversity as microgrids um, come into play and begin to be networked into each other as um, particular houses. As we go back to this Edison model where you have a very, very small local grid, but is nevertheless ties into the big grid. So there's sort of diversity in infrastructure that we're trying to figure out how to knit all of that together. There's diversity in markets as neighbors begin to attempt to sell electricity to their neighbors, as opposed to selling it to the utility, and then their neighbors have to buy it back from the utility. And then there's um, also diversity in the fuel, so what we're using to make electricity with. And that, to me, seems to be short of some sort of legislation from on high that says we will no longer have any fossil fuels in the system at all. That seems to be the way that things are going across the board is from kind of a a monolithic way of, with a couple of exceptions, way of doing things to a, a, an interoperable but radically sort of creative, non-standardized way of doing things. Wonderful conversation, Gretchen. Uh, this is a fascinating topic, and and, per, and especially today, wonderful contribution to the space. I want to thank you for joining Clean Capital's Experts Only podcast. Yeah, no, it's great. And as you can tell, when when people say the grid, they're like, Oh, that must be really boring, but it's really not. Thank you, Gretchen Bakke, for an amazing conversation. We hope you enjoyed it. And thank you to our producers, Lauren Glickman and Emily Connor, for supporting the podcast. And thank you to the listeners, uh, our growing listener base, for joining us each week. For more information on Clean Capital, please visit cleancapital.com. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.